Turn with me to 1 Timothy 3.16. Uh, the reason we're taking a digression somewhat from Colossians this evening, two things uh, when uh, we spoke from this chapter last uh, Lord's Day morning. Uh, we spoke about the pillar and ground of the truth, and verse 16 is the truth of which the church is the pillar and ground, uh, the truth to be upheld. And then also, uh, we considered last Wednesday evening from Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 and verse 10, that all the plentitude, the fullness of deity dwells bodily in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that we are complete in him and only in him. So we have uh, a connection, and that's why we're looking into this rather huge verse of Scripture. So let's have a word of prayer before we do. Our Father, we do thank Thee for Thy Word. And as we come to approach this study tonight, as we look into this wondrous verse of Thy Holy Word, we certainly stand in need of Thy grace and the help of Thy Holy Spirit that we might be able to say, even with the Apostle Paul, that we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. So, Father, be pleased to take this frail instrument of thine and to cause the name of thy Son to be magnified and supply for us the information that we need that thy holy name would be exalted. And we'll thank thee in the blessed and holy name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The Apostle Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.16, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Well, there is more in this verse of Scripture than we could possibly derive. Even the wondrousness of the divine incarnation, we know its reality, we're taught of its wondrous truth, all of the glory concerning it shall not be known fully till all eternity. I think of the Apostle Paul. He spoke in Ephesians 3.8 of preaching the glory of Christ among the Gentiles. And he spoke of the unsearchable riches of Christ unto me. whom less than the least of all saints is this grace given, he declares. And I got to thinking, well, if the Apostle Paul used so mightily of God from the time that the Lord met him outside those gates of Damascus until he went into the presence of his glorious Lord, used so wondrously and so mightily and given so much, given a gospel that was directly made known to him by the Lord Jesus Christ, as he says to the Galatians, I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me was not after man, for I neither, neither received it of man, neither was I taught it. 
but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he speaks of the unsearchable riches of Christ. Those riches will be unfolded forever. And what a glorious reality that we shall ever grow in the knowledge of him who is infinite in his glorious person. So we have in this verse the summation of such glorious truth, truth that's found in the person who is himself the truth and springs from eternity. The one who can say, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending. The Alpha and the Omega, the one declared himself in Isaiah chapter 46 or 44, I think it is, to be the Alpha and the Omega as describing himself and declaring himself to be Jehovah, to be God. And the apostle here speaks of the mystery of godliness. And so we have to ask the question, why is godliness a mystery? And we'll consider that as we look into this passage. Certainly there are glorious mysteries in uh, the first item that God was manifest in the flesh. But what about the mystery of godliness? But even greater in this, this verse, we want to consider Christ, the Son of God the one to whom the apostle here is making reference. And we know that a thousand tongues, a thousand volumes could not begin to express the full glory of the Lord and his place in God's wondrous eternal purpose. In him dwelling all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, the express image of the very Father, he whose glory is so manifested that when we behold the glory of God, we're told in 2 Corinthians 4, we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's no wonder that when John's gospel is concluded that we read the world itself could not contain the books that should be written, should everything be declared concerning this glorious person that we proclaim. But it's precious to consider that it's not that we have to know him completely, fully in all of his plenitude. We can't. We don't have the capacity. But we are called to trust him fully. To trust him completely. And uh, <clears throat> knowing who he is, knowing why he came, believing what we are taught and told in Scripture concerning him. So then let's together seek God's mercy to give us that which only he can enable us to receive. As we look here and consider the mystery of godliness and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, 
justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Well, we've, in our study in Colossians, considered the mystery of God, the Father, and Christ, the Lord. And we learn that it's in him, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom all the treasures of God are to be found. And so, when we consider this mystery of godliness, it's not so much here that godliness is a mystery, but rather the secret of its power. The secret of the power of godliness. To live godly is to live Godward. It's to live out a life unto and for God and not for self. And there's no one that can do that but those who live godly in Christ Jesus. There is no godliness apart from him. For there is no true knowledge of God apart from him. And there is certainly no true relationship with God as Father except through him, through his eternal Son. And so godliness is a life that's set apart from the profaneness and the emptiness of the fallen state of this world to life lived in subjection to God and truly for his glory. So easy it is to read the creeds and to realize that our chief end is to glorify God or to enjoy him forever. So easy to say, but there's no one that will do that except those who have this godliness and know the secret of this godliness and the power of this godliness. It's to know God, to know the living God, and in knowing him to be satisfied with nothing apart from him, to be satisfied with him. It's to be his. It's to belong to him. It's to be his alone. You read this in the saints of old in the Old Testament. In Psalm 42, there was one who was away from where God had specially manifested himself in the holy city and in the temple. And in this place, he cries out, As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? You hear it in David, in his Psalms, as in Psalm 63, O God, thou art my God. Early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee. My flesh longeth for thee. In a dry and thirsty land where no water is, to see thy power and thy glory, so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. David's declaring, I have beheld thee in the way thou hast been pleased to make thyself known. And my soul thirsts for God. For the living God. It's a wondrous relationship when God covenants with us to be our God and we to be his people. But men 
whether atheist or theist, whether totally profane or religious. By nature, men are bent downward. They're bent to the things of this world, to the base things of this world. We came into the world that way, always embracing more the philosophy of this world, not the truth of God. And what does the philosophies of this world lead to? What is their main thrust? Well, it's to seek self-gratification. Self-gratification and happiness as the end of one's existence. That constitutes the philosophies of men. Far different the true wisdom. Far different the wisdom of God in the person of Christ. Far different the realization of life and all of its wondrousness and its trueness in the Son of God and in knowing Him. Far different to realize that God did not create this world to make men happy. As the Apostle Paul writes in Romans eleven thirty six, Of Him and through Him and to Him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Even those who profess to be religious or to be godly. Even those who would live an ascetic lifestyle. That means touch not, taste not, handle not. We'll deal with that in Colossians. Those who think because they leave off certain things that this makes them godly. Living by the do's and the don'ts. They can do that also. Completely self-centered in self-righteousness and self-exaltation. Self-gratification is still the leading desire in the unsaved religionist. But who lives in the true knowledge of God? with a life that finds its true satisfaction only in Him. A life that says, I don't want to live without Him. I don't want a day without Him. I don't want to walk without Him. I don't want to begin a morning without Him. I don't want to put my head down on the pillow at night without thoughts of Him and knowing Him. Who lives? in such of the knowledge of God as to truly have the desire, the goal, the pursuit of glorifying Him, exalting Him in all things. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 12, Who can find a faithful man? So rare was it to the psalmist, Who can find one who's truly faithful? Who could find one who could really not only say but mean what the Apostle Paul could say and mean in Philippians chapter 2 verse 21 or chapter 1 verse 21. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I have a dear brother who's on the verge of going into the presence of his Lord my dear brother and friend, Pastor David King, 
I can imagine even right now that there's an embassy of angels that has been commissioned to take him into the presence of his Lord. He's one I think could say that in truth. He's one that challenged my soul throughout the years with his heart toward the Lord and his his desire to walk with him and his desire for the good of those to whom he was pastoring and for the salvation of those to whom he spoke. I think probably most everybody in Milton, Pennsylvania would know him. He glorified his Lord wherever he would go. But where is the secret of godliness? Where is its power? Where does it come from? Meditating today on 2 Timothy chapter 3, where the Apostle Paul is telling Timothy that which characterized the last days, and of course these things really characterize the world, but they are more evident at some times than other times. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. And then it struck me, all of those horrific things, he says, then having a form of godliness, they profess to believe God. They professed to believe God. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. They had no ability to live godly. They had no hearts that were truly Godward. They didn't walk in the true fear of God walked in their own ways they just made a profession like Paul tells Titus in Titus chapter 1 they profess that they know God but in works they deny him and the way they live they deny him there is here a mystery the mystery of godliness but it's in what we might consider a greater, far greater mystery. And without controversy, a mystery known only to those who do live godly in Christ Jesus. We read about the mystery of God in Scripture. We read about, we studied in Colossians, the mystery among the Gentiles, Christ in you, the hope of glory. We read about the fellowship of the mystery. And we read here of the mystery of godliness. And all in regard to a genuine, true salvation from sin and unto God. A genuine possession of eternal life. Found in one person. And in relationship to him. In whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Godliness is never 
separate from salvation in Christ. It's drawn from it. It comes out of it. It comes into the soul and the knowledge of him and the wondrous of his grace and realized in the hour we first believe to the saving of the soul. To Titus, Paul writes in Titus chapter, chapter 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness in hope of eternal life which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. This genuine salvation, this miracle of salvation, this wondrousness of God's grace, this delivering a sinner from themselves and from sin, transforming them. It's all God's work. It's all God's grace. It all comes by grace. But it all comes in relationship to Christ. Titus 2, the apostle writes, The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. That means all kinds of men, wherever they are in life, whatever station they're in, whether they're Jew, whether they're Gentile, whether they're educated, whether they're uneducated, male, female, slave, free, whoever they are, wherever they are, the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us the same grace by which we are saved, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Godliness doesn't bring salvation, but salvation does bring godliness. This wondrous grace of God does bring godliness. So you see, salvation is far more than being forgiven for sin. It's inclusive of that, thank God. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Wondrous when we know the glory of being washed and cleansed from sin and having them put away by the blood of God's Son. But salvation is more than redemption from sin. Salvation is redemption to God. Thou hast redeemed us to God, seeing the saints in Revelation 5, 9. Thou hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Only he could do that. Only he could bring us to God. Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. How many love God supremely because they know him? Because they know what he has done for them. How many can profess to know him, but they find their delights in the world, in the things of it, 
not in God, not in Christ, not in serving him, not in declaring his truth to this world and living godly in him. But those who are redeemed to God, that's a different matter. All comes. Everything that's necessary for life and for godliness is in the person and by the faith of Jesus Christ as he is divinely made known to the soul in the gospel. It's a wondrous thing when this knowledge comes. It's not a knowledge that can be self-acquired. It's not a knowledge that we can educate ourselves into. It's not a knowledge that we can exercise free will and make ours. This knowledge comes by God's sovereign work. And that alone. Just like you remember what the Lord said to Simon Peter when the Lord says, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Various answers given. Who do you say that I am? Peter answers for the apostles. Thou art the Christ the Son of the living God. Flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, Peter, but my Father which is in heaven. And he, Christ, is the revelation of the Father. He's the revelation of God. We know God in him. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son. And he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. As in Matthew eleven twenty seven, and so we have in this big verse of Scripture in First Timothy three sixteen, if you please, the brevity of the gospel story, given in brief language, but defying full knowledge, and yet it defines our faith. God was manifest in the flesh. Justified in the spirit. Seen of angels. Preached unto the Gentiles. Believed on in the world. Received up into glory. And it's a wondrous thing that we have so many wonderful truths given in the word God. Sometimes one verse of scripture, power, when God takes his word and speaks to a heart, that's a powerful thing. I didn't know much when I was a little boy going to Sunday school. I'm thankful the teacher had us boys memorize scripture. And I can remember listening to the preacher and he spoke so softly that I grab a hold of my, my grandmother. I called her mama because she raised me. And I, I could complain. I, I couldn't hear what he was saying. I can remember saying to myself, if I ever get called to preach, I'm going to speak so somebody can hear me. I was just a little bitty fella. But I remember burning in my soul. And of course, then most Baptists, they proclaimed... John 3.16, some of them, that's, <laughs> that was the major thing. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And I can remember, even as a little boy, finally hearing that, 
in my soul. Finally hearing it. And I was convicted as a sinner when I was a boy. I was a sinner, a vile sinner, and I feared the face of God. And I was awakened and would lie in my bed at night sometimes fearing judgment. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace, my fears relieved. Coming to trust Christ as a little child. And you know God speaks to us like little children. He speaks to us like little children. Here we have this huge verse of scripture. We could never fathom the depths of it, but yet it's simply stated. And except we have the faith as a little child, we know nothing of God's kingdom. God was manifest in the flesh. The gospel proceeds from this beginning of knowledge, this astounding fact of the divine incarnation that we could never fathom. God, who created everything, God, who is from everlasting to everlasting, the omniscient, omnipotent, almighty, God of all glory. Assumed a human flesh body. Not another person. Same person. One person. Taking into union with his eternal deity our frail human flesh. It's astounding. It's astounding, the God of all glory. In the second person of the triune Godhead assumes humanity. Takes upon him human flesh. The union of God and man. And one glorious person. From eternity, he comes into time. To many, he would have to say, year from beneath, I'm from above. Year of this world, I'm not of this world. Assuming human nature is an act of his own will. And the greatest act of humiliation ever volitionally done by him. He assumes human nature. He comes in the flesh. Preexistent, eternal, equal in nature, power and glory with God the Father. Assuming body what huge words in the beginning was the word and the word was with God 
and the word was God the same was in the beginning with God all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory the glory as of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth The body which was made in time was occupied by the glorious person who came from eternity. Witnessed, experienced, touched, heard by the apostles whom he chose to declare him. And his truth. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life, for the life was manifested, and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. No more did he have beginning in the virgin's womb than that he had an end at Calvary. He came down from heaven. He assumed a human body. He would ascend back to heaven in a human body. God was manifest in the flesh. What words, what truth, what glory. Far beyond anything we could ever of ourselves discover. But we're assured when he calls forth from his voice for diseases to depart from men, when he calls the dead to come to life, when he hushes the raging sea before him, he becomes as still and as quiet as a little lamb. Assured when his voice goes forth and people are hearing him and transformed, and those who are sinners become saints. Those who walked in the filth of the vileness of sin now walk in his holy ways. And no one could do that but God incarnate. God was manifest in the flesh. But to think further that he submitted himself to the awful powers of darkness to be crucified. To suffer the agonies of hell. Why? Well, rejoice in Peter's words. When Peter writes that he was manifest in these last times for you. 
manifest in these last times for you. He comes into the world to save sinners. And God, being infinitely holy, alone could choose the way in which His justice could be absolutely satisfied on behalf of sinners. He sends His Son, the Son of God, into this world to take upon Him flesh and blood, destroy the works of the wicked one, and call those for whom He died unto Himself. God was manifest in the flesh justified in the spirit justified in the spirit we are here assured that this is speaking of the Holy Spirit who vindicates if you please the Lord Jesus Christ who sets him forth as the son of God you know, the Lord Jesus did his works in the power of the Spirit. He did not draw from his deity at any time to overrule his very real humanity. But he walked in the power of the Spirit and was given the Spirit without measure. No wonder. He could say to some at one time, you can be forgiven if you speak against the Son of Man. But there's an unforgivable sin. That's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who set forth Christ, who makes Him known, who shows Him to be holy, who declares Him to be the Son of God. Who shows him in all of his splendorous, infinite goodness. Who empowers him. To where his enemies had to say, never man spake like this man. He is in all whom the Holy Spirit makes him known vindicated in his claim to be the Son of God, vindicated in his perfect righteousness. He's raised from the dead. The triune God was involved in the resurrection of Christ from the dead. In Psalm 16, 900 years B.C., before Christ came, Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. It is he who sets forth and shows forth the risen Christ. He had no sin. Sin brings death. Sin is the reason for death in the human race. He couldn't remain dead. It was not possible. He had no sin. He comes forth from the grave alive forevermore. I am he that liveth and was dead and behold I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. 
He died, but not for himself, for others. The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. Wondrous for all those whose sins are remitted by him, he secures our justification, our justification. He was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification, as in Romans chapter 4, verse 25. It made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He completed his work of redemption. He cries victoriously from the cross, it is finished. Redemption complete in him. We had nothing. He secures the salvation of those for whom he dies. And freely justifies through the miracle of faith, a saving faith, a genuine faith, those who do indeed believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Justified in the spirit. Seen of angels. Must have been with an incredible amazement that the angels beheld the wonder of the divine incarnation. We know it's so. We hear them as they met with those shepherds out on the Judean hillside. We hear them. They're born unto you this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth peace, goodwill toward men. They behold the wonder of the divine incarnation. They behold the one that they worshipped. The worship. <laughs> He's worshipped by the angels, as in Hebrews 1 6. They worshipped him. He was God. They knew him. He's the one who sends them. He's the one who's over them. What amazement. They must have watched with wonder the holy career of the Son of the living God, which things the angels desire to look into, as Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1.12. They were with him. They watched him as he defeated the adversary in the wilderness temptation. They were there to encourage and strengthen him thereafter. They watched him. They must have been astounded in Gethsemane when he sweats great drops of blood that the pressure is so great upon his body that the capillaries burst and they hear his cry my God my God why hast thou forsaken me from the cross 
They strengthen him in Gethsemane to remember that though he is God incarnate, he did not draw upon his deity to overrule in the least his humanity. He came in all points like as we are, yet without sin. An angel strengthened him. Peter, put up your sword. Don't you know that I could call twelve legions of angels? Scene of angels. But in this verse, in the sequence of events, it would seem that this has reference more to the dispatching of those angels who first beheld the living Christ. who rolled, rolled the stone away from the tomb and to those dear women who first showed up. He is not here. He is risen as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. Before ever human eyes fell upon the Savior, after his resurrection, before ever Mary Magdalene heard his voice call her name in the garden tomb area, these heavenly messengers saw the risen Christ. They rolled that tomb away and declared he is risen indeed. wonder what glorious news they may have taken back to their their fellows <laughs> scene of angels preached unto the Gentiles that's no little thing <laughs> the most bigoted people on the face of the earth were the Jews They viewed the Gentiles as filthy dogs. <laughs> they wouldn't converse with them. They wouldn't eat with them. Of old, you remember the prophet Jonah? He didn't want to go and preach to the Ninevites. not to the Jews only. Not to the Jews only. God had declared seven centuries before through the prophet Isaiah that he would send his gospel to the Gentiles. That those who sat in darkness would see a great light. The idolatrous Gentiles. The immoral Gentiles. Those who wallowed in the filth of the basest of sins. Listen to what Paul writes to the Corinthians. What a wicked city. But God called people out of that city and told the apostle Paul, I have much people in this city. 
Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor revilers, uh, sorcerers, whatever. These shall not enter into the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified. But you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. God did a wondrous thing. No more were they fornicators, idolaters, adulterers. No more did they defraud their brethren. No more were they thieves. They were washed. They were sanctified. They were justified. And the most bigoted, formerly, of the Jews, who declared himself a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, the most zealous advocate of Judaism, who hated the name of Jesus Christ, and those who proclaimed that name. God did a wondrous thing in saving him. And we would think he was trained in everything Jewish. And yet God calls him to go to the Gentiles to preach his saving gospel to them. Declaring the Jews require a sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews a stumbling block, and, and under the Greeks foolishness, but under them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And teaching the wondrous truth that God had chosen that the Gentiles whom he would save by his grace, and the Jews whom he would save by his grace, would be all in one body. All distinction forever removed. Preached unto the Gentiles. Believed on in the world. Here's a miracle. Here's a miracle. Men only think of miracles as if it's something it's turning the water to wine or, or healing a, a sick body. No. There's even a greater miracle. It's the miracle of God's salvation. It's the miracle of a new birth that enables one to behold by faith the Son of the living God and rest in the gloriousness of the cross as their only hope. Forgiveness and reconciliation to God. And whose lives then are transformed. It's a miracle of faith. Faith is not something that can be worked up by man. It doesn't come from man's so-called free will. It is the gift of God. Worked by God in one. Not worked by them. Given by grace. His gift 
miraculously. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could behold more of that miracle in our day? Well, God chose the foolishness of preaching for that. Believed on in the world. Not like the angels. The angels saw the scene of angels. These see not, yet believe. This faith is brought to the hearts of those who in hearing, hear in truth the word of God, whose faith was as secured as was the glory of Christ by his death and his resurrection purchased in the cross for his chosen. And thus also are the words of Christ vindicated to all the Gentiles who hear, who believe, who come to him and trust their very souls to him. As he says, other sheep I have which are not of this fold, not of this Jewish fold. Other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Not in vain is the gospel preached. There are those who will hear and believe by a wondrous sovereign grace that rescues them from sin and secures them to God forever. Big verse, isn't it? Finally, received up into glory. Received up into glory. And not as the premillennial dispensational system teaches that his glory awaits the coming day. No, no. In his ascension, in his resurrection, Remember what he said to the Emmaus disciples in Luke chapter 24? Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Peter writes in 1 Peter 1 verses 10 and 11 of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you searching what or what manner of time the spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. He's glorified now. He's in glory now. When he comes the second time, he's already glorified. He comes in his glory. And we might ask why this is placed last, because the other things in this verse are in sequence. Maybe it's because all these other things are secured because he lives and he reigns. He has all power. He's Lord over everything in heaven and in earth. If we can keep that in mind, we'll have a great deal of comfort in this fallen world, whatever happens in it, because we don't belong to it. He cures, secures the salvation of all the Father gave him, and he's not going to fail. 
and he's not going to lose a single one. He's glorious. Sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. He's the reason nothing purposed by God can ever fail. He's entered into the presence of God for us. He intercedes. Your pastor prays for you. But those prayers are nothing in comparison to the one who loved you and gave himself for you and intercedes on your behalf. Life and godliness can never come by your works. They can never come by what you do. They can't come because you quit some gross sins or outward things. They can't come by mere human determinationism or decisionism. Life and godliness comes by the miracle of faith in Jesus Christ and no other way. You must have him to have life. You must acknowledge him by faith not some experience, not some work you do. Christ only. May God be pleased to bless and cause some that have never heard, even through this medium that we're able to use now, the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. We got a little late start. We had some problems getting our live stream going, but thank the Lord we were able to do so. <clears throat> My dear friend, those known by some of you who've been with us in times past and love this church. <laughs> Pastor David King and Pat, his dear wife, they loved to come here. And, and when they would minister the Word of God, I, I remember him saying, you, you have, a, you have a, a real New Testament church. And uh, <clears throat> there. He's nearly home. That's his desire. His family's going to miss him until they see him again. His church is going to miss him. He's always been a challenge to me. I think he's one of the best pastors I've ever known. Loved people, suffered mightily. And compromised and would not compromise the truth of God. I'm glad he's going home. I wonder if there's not a delegation of those angelic beings that are ready to usher him into the presence of his Lord. That's going to be hard on his family and the church. So pray for them.
continue to remember Jill and her family and the loss of her her dad. He had quite a testimony. Uh, able to listen to a couple of preachers at his funeral service that preached the truth, they expressed his testimony, and it, it was good. It, it really touched my heart to hear it. So. Uh, she's got much to be thankful for and her family. I pray for her. They're comforted this time. Greta Dean, uh, of course, she uh, had her one-year anniversary of her cancer today, right? Her appointment. Year today. It was all good. So everything good. So thank the Lord for that. Continue to remember Bob, of course, and his struggles with pain, severe sometimes, and always wanting to pray for his children and grandchildren, so do remember them, their salvation. I think he far, far wants their salvation more than he wants to be delivered from pain. Do we have other special prayer requests? Kathy, pray for her salvation. Sebastian, pray for him and his grandparents. I think they have a lot to face now. Uh, William's salvation. I've been joining you on that for a good while. Mike's dad, I haven't heard anything since he sent out the note. Uh, we pray for Mike Brackett's dad. And we've had the fall. And whatever else comes to mind, I'm going to conclude our live stream at this time. If you'll come take care of this. And We'll have our prayers here, and those at home can pray.
We had a rough time getting on there, Daniel. About ten minutes late, I guess. I hope people didn't get too impatient. <laughs> uh, oh, by the way, I have 75 feet of Ethernet cable coming tomorrow and an adapter from USB to Ethernet. So Jim's going to put it from that under here, under the pulpit, so it can be directly put. That'll help temporarily until we get things done better, I hope. But that worked good when uh, I had uh, an electrician do work. We have an Ethernet cable in my study. I have on our upstairs, I have my study in one end of the house and Carolyn's office on the other end, all the way in the other end of the house. That way she won't disturb me when I'm saying, no, I'm taking pictures. No, but anyway, I'm just teasing with it. But, it <laughs> yeah. but anyway, had an Ethernet cable run from the modem, which is in my study, all the way through the house, over and up, and into her computer on the way other end. It worked much better than Wi-Fi. Well, you fellas, go ahead and pray, and we'll pray with you and conclude the service okay. then with a Thank you. 